I'll be reading from Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, 9 to 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Father, we know that you are good, both benevolent and upright, righteous, holy. We thank you, God, for the privilege that we've had to sing of your holiness and of your righteousness and of your majesty and that you are worthy of all praise and honor. And we ask, God, that as we look at your word, that our hearts would continue to be stirred toward you, that you would have the rightful place of honor in our lives, that we would give our amen to what you've said, all of it, and that our lives would be yielded before you, that you might be worshipped in spirit and truth. In Christ's name, amen. May be seated. We're coming to the end of another year of school, and for us at His Hill, that means that most of our students are leaving. And we have quite a few Bible school students from His Hill here this morning. And um, on behalf of the body here at Bernie Bible, we just want to say we've loved having you here with us, and um, we will miss you. Some will be staying on for camp, but the majority will be moving on to the next thing that God has for them. You can stay for potluck. Your last time to. <laughs> this is um, one of those passages that is really pretty brutal. Um, it's like coming to the doctor and hoping for good news, and the doctor says it's worse than you can imagine. Reminds me of um, when I went skating once. Larry was announcing about a youth outing coming up with roller skating. People don't ask me anymore if I can skate. (laughs) In Bible college, I went skating one time. Because in Bible college, you couldn't hold hands. Except if you were roller skating. (laughs) And so everybody went skating on roller skate night. And there was a girl who was a little interested in me, and I was interested in her. And so we, we were skating partners, but I couldn't skate, and she could. And so she had to solicit another friend, another girl, and the two of them stood on either side of me, held hands with me, and I wore them both out. <laughs> they switched sides after one point, and because the one girl said, I just can't take it anymore. And, then after, and after probably half an hour, hour of not getting any better, the one girl 
said, um, I'm sorry, I, I just have to give up. I, I've, I am worn out. So I left the other girl by herself. She wasn't going to quit. She liked me. And um, that left one arm flailing, which was not good in a crowded skating rink. So you can do bodily harm, I found out. I, um, I, I almost cracked the ribs of one person when he went by, hit him with my elbow. Another guy hit in the face. And um, the next day in the cafeteria, I was standing there just minding my own business, and a guy walked up to me, and never seen him before, and he said, Hey, McCall. And I looked at him, and he's got the biggest black eye you ever saw. <laughs> and he says, This is what you did to me last night. Sorry excuse for skating. One time we had a, a car catch on fire at his hill. You're wondering how this is going to relate to the sermon I'm coming to. <laughs> car caught on fire at his hill. And so we, we rushed to the scene to what was going on. And it was on the road that goes through our property. And, and um, fire department came and trees were starting to catch on fire. It was really a big deal. The whole fire suburb, whole car in suburban was just up in flames. You could hardly even recognize what kind of car it was. And so the fire department came out and put the, put the fire out, put the trees out. And, um, and so then the, the fire department chief was standing there with the driver of the vehicle. And he says, um, was this your car? And he goes, no. He says, I was working on it for somebody else. It was a mechanic. And he said, it had a fuel pump problem. And I replaced the fuel pump. And I was taking it out for a test drive. And it burst into flames. And so the fire chief said, well, whose car is it? And he told him. And he goes, isn't he married to so-and-so? And then the mechanic said, yeah. And he goes, oh, man, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> I know his wife. Oh, man. What are you going to tell her? And the mechanic says, well, I, I think maybe I'll tell her it, it overheated a little bit. <laughs> and, the, and the fire chief says, yeah, you can just say it, it's running a little hot. <laughs> and I stood there and just laughed. And the car is just charred. It's just, a, it's just a chassis sitting there on the street. Our situation before God, we would like to make it less than what it is. But when we are born into this world, we are born in a condition of sin that far exceeds anything that we can imagine. Um, it's like me roller skating. Like that car. It's more than just a little overheated. More than just running a little hot. It's all but a disaster. And this is what Paul is saying here. And again, I don't want to overstate what Paul's saying because there's a danger with that too, as we'll see as we move through this passage. But typically, our problem is to understate when it comes to sin and not to overstate. And so the summary statement that Paul first gives here in verse 9 is that we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. We're all sinners, every one of us. And it's really pointless to argue about who's the bigger sinner. Paul considered himself the chief among sinners. And, and yet it's pointless really to go there because the the. The gist of it is, we all fall short. As he's going to say later on in this chapter, which is another summary statement, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So no matter how good we may be in relation to someone else, we still fall far short of the goodness of God, the glory of God. So whether we're late by five minutes or late by five hours, we still miss the bus. And we're late. And there's no sense standing around pointing fingers and saying who's better, who's worse than another person. We all are under sin. We all have a death sentence on us. Every one of us. And then to get specific about how bad it is, he starts listing these things. None are righteous, not even one. None understands. None seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Bottom line, we are not good people. There are so many religions in the world, and sometimes even Christians are caught up in this, that say there is a spark of divinity in every person. That there is, that there is an element of good. That people are basically good. That is not what the scripture tells us. We are still in the image of God. Just like that car burned out, it's still a car and you can tell it was a car. It's no longer something else, it's just a car that's not working as it was supposed to, but it's still a car. We are still in the image of God. But we are not as God intended us to be. We are born separate from God, and the sin of our lives is beyond anything we can comprehend. Probably the most basic demonstration we have of how incomprehensible sin is, is that its just punishment is eternal. God is a just God. He will never do anything that is excessive, that is over the top, when it comes to judgment. He meets judgment out precisely. Not an ounce more than what is necessary. And yet God, in His wisdom and in His justice, says that sin must be punished for eternity. We don't understand sin. That's, we just can't begin to comprehend that. But we know that God is good and righteous and just. And when a good God says, this is the only just response to sin, is eternal punishment. We have to accept God's statement. We aren't good people. We are sinners. The heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Our righteousness, Isaiah 64 says, is as filthy rags before a holy God. But we need to understand that one of the things that makes this troublesome to us is because we know people who are Basically good, it would seem, without God. So we don't want to go so far in the, from this passage and to say that man can have no heart even for God in his sinful state. Look at a couple other passages. One here in Romans in, the, in, the, in um, chapter 10 where Paul speaks of the Jews and their fallen condition. Romans chapter 10 Verses 1 to 3. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, speaking of the Jewish people, is for their salvation. They need to be saved. They are lost. 
They are dead in their sins and trespasses, just as all the rest of humanity is. But then look at verse 2. For I bear them witness, so I'm speaking on their behalf, that they, these lost people who need salvation, have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They are lost. They have not surrendered to receiving the righteousness of God that's offered to us in Christ. But as lost people, separated from God, with sin that is worthy of eternal punishment, they have a zeal for God. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, another similar statement And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is. And we say, Amen. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And whoever comes to God must believe that He is. And that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. God expects to be sought by the unbeliever who is in His sin. God expects to be yielded to, to be believed, to be trusted. So even though the car may be burned out, we are still in the image of God with the God-given capacity to seek God, to have a zeal for God. And therefore, God can hold us and does hold us morally accountable for not seeking Him, for not trusting Him, for not believing and not receiving the gift of salvation that's offered to us in Christ. We aren't born good people. We are sinners. Our heart is continually toward that which is evil. On the military channel, which we happen to be getting right now, um, they are having a series of programs about Himmler and Hitler. I am learning things I've never heard before. But one of the most disturbing things is just looking in the faces of Hitler's top Nazi officers, like the General Himmler, who was probably the man most responsible for the, for the slaughter of so many millions of people across Europe. He was the man who formed the Nazi SS troops, and then later the Gestapo, and then took over the, the um, 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 nuclear facility, which we now know, a, a scientific facility where they were actually making a, an atomic bomb and were ahead of us even in that. But it was so disturbing to look, in the, look at, at Himmler's photo, these, these movies that were made of him, and to see that he looked just like any guy walking down the street. And it reminded me of a statement that of when the Nuremberg trials took place, where the Nazi war criminals were put on trial. One of the men who, who had um, been a, a um, part of the, one of the death camps and was there to testify against some of these officers, he broke down hit the floor crying and, and just in sobs. He just couldn't take it anymore. And so they interviewed him later and they said, What's, what happened? 
Why are you so broken like this? Is it because of, the, of everything that you were hearing? Is it because of seeing these men again? And his response was, no, it's none of those things. It's because I didn't expect these men to look so normal. He thought they would look evil, but they looked normal. We're only 60 years away from that. The heart of man has not changed. What has happened in the 60 years since then has been repeated over and over again in countries around this world. It's happening now. It could happen here. Germany was considered a Christian nation when Hitler came to power. And there were very, very few Germans who stood against him. We may live in a civilized time, but that does not mean we have civil hearts toward God. The heart of every man is bent toward wanting his own way. Easy way to prove it? Just start saying words like obey, submit, no. (laughs) And all of us that have kids, especially little kids, we know. And God says, it's not just cute, it's evil. It is flat out evil. And left unchecked, it is capable of evil that is beyond comprehension. And God looks on the heart of man. And he knows maybe you and I have not done some of the most vile things imaginable. But he knows we could. We could. Oswald Chambers has said there is no criminal who is half as bad as what any of us are in potentiality. In other words, we are potentially twice as bad as any criminal. But he goes on to say, all we need to do is to hand ourselves over to the redemption of Jesus Christ and we need never experience the terrible possibilities that lie within our hearts. All we need to do is to hand ourselves over to the redemption of Jesus Christ and we need never experience the terrible possibilities that lie within our hearts. The possibilities, those terrible possibilities, do not go away when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. They are still there. If you think they have, then you don't even know your own heart. It's a wonder there's any hope for us at all. Speaking of our speech, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The spirit of truth comes to live within the Christian and he leads us into what is true. And the more you listen to his voice, the more you begin to see how deceptive your heart is. How deceptive your words are. God's standard is absolute truth.
whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All human beings, every race, rank, creed, and culture, Jew and Gentile, moral and immoral, religious and irreligious, are without exception sinful, guilty, inexcusable, and speechless before God. As one person has put it, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of the glory of God. But so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you stand on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. And the righteousness of God is as the stars. doesn't matter if you stand on an alp. Morally, in comparison to anyone else, you are as unable to touch the stars as a person in a mine shaft. One of the things that God is, I think, trying to impress upon us in this section of Scripture is that even if by some stretch of the imagination you could be found righteous in one area of your life, say that you've always loved God. From the time that you were the smallest child and your earliest memories, you had a longing for God, a love for God, and appreciation for the things of God. But in matters of will, you chose your own way. You did not yield to God. You did not say yes to God. The three major aspects of our being, our volition, our mind, intellect, and our emotions. God says he wants to be loved with all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. And if any one of those three fails to be 100% toward God, God says you are ungodly. Because God is one. Every facet of the nature and being of God is one. Consistent. Moving toward the same thing. Exhibiting the same thing. And He has created us in every facet of our being, to be one toward Him. And in the least degree that any one facet of our being is falling short of the mark, the whole man falls short of the mark. The mark being the righteousness and holiness of God. God says even if you're good in one area, if you're not whole in the entirety of your being, Toward God, you fall short, far short. There is no protest, there is no defense, no justification. Look what it says in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed. And all the world may become accountable to God. Remember, the law was not given to the Gentile. It was given to the Jew. 
The Jews were the privileged possessors of a revelation from God that, the, that no one else in the world had received. They were at the top of the pyramid. They had greater privilege in terms of the, the ability to know God and to walk with Him than any other people group on the face of the earth. God gave that to them so that other people groups would know how to walk with God and would know God. But they were given the law, and that wasn't a negative thing. It was a positive thing. We get it negative. God says, this is a good thing. I gave the Jews the law. I blessed them. I privileged them with a revelation of myself. Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 7 that the law is good and righteous and holy. There is nothing negative about the law in and of itself. But it does shut us up, Paul's saying. That when you look at the law and see this is an expression of who God is, it silences us. No other gods before me. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not covet. Makes us silent. I fall short of the glory of God. We have no protest, no defense, no justification. The law closes our mouths. It makes us all accountable to God. It brings the knowledge of sin. The law justifies no one. And it condemns all. Those are five things that are being said in these two verses. Look at them again. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, that all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. It shuts up. It makes all accountable to God. It brings the knowledge of sin. It justifies no one, and it condemns everyone. Well, what about the person who doesn't have the law? Surely God doesn't hold him accountable. He has the law, as we've already seen, of conscience. The law of God's glory written into creation. And what he knows of God through his own conscience and creation is enough to condemn him. If he is judged on the basis of nothing other than what he believes by his conscience to be true and right, then he stands condemned. He stands condemned. Why doesn't God just change the rules? He made the rules. He made the law. Why did He just change it? Why did He just say, I mean, if God's the one who says that sin deserves eternal punishment, then why doesn't God just change His own rule? How many times I've heard students say that at His Hill, or even staff. Why don't we just change the rule? And in most cases, we can do that at His Hill because it's just dealing with our little community. And there are things that we have determined to be expedient for us, but not necessarily absolutes. And so people can come to the rule maker, me. (laughs) And they can plea with the rule maker and petition the rule maker and say, rule maker, we don't like your rules. We've taken a vote. <laughs> change the rules. And the rule maker can change the rules. 
God can't change his. Because the rules, very simply, are him. The rules come from him. They are true of him. He can no more change the rules than he can change himself. And God is unchanging. That's what it comes down to. We may not like the rules. We may want to be judged on some other basis than perfection. Some basis other than the glory of God. God himself is not free to change the rules. Because they are a reflection, a manifestation of himself. They will not, cannot be changed. And we can say, but God, you're love. And God says, yes, I'm love. And I love you. And in love, I have made every provision possible so that you do not have to experience my justice and my wrath. But I can't stop being a just, righteous God. It's never going to happen. And if you are putting your assurance and your confidence on my love, and you are not counting on my righteousness and my holiness and my justice, you will be sadly disappointed. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, the scripture says you will never be disappointed. But if you are trusting in the love of God, you will be disappointed. The only only place to put your trust and never be disappointed is in the person of Jesus Christ. And in Him alone. He can't change the rules because the rules are a manifestation of Himself. Praise God. If God could change the rules, then I could never be certain of anything. Could I really trust Him if He could make an exception for me or for you or for any other person? I could never trust Him with myself if he could make an exception for me or with anyone else. He can't, and he won't. Praise God. He is an unchanging God. Therefore, we can rest in who he is. On the one hand, it should cause us to fear him if we don't trust him. But if we do trust him, we can sleep like babies at night. We can rest. The next paragraph, in summary, very quickly, just simply says, righteousness, the righteousness of God, which we all need, comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So let me reiterate simply what he's been saying here. Number one, we are not good people apart from God. Number two, we are sinners. Number three, we have no protest, no defense, no justification. Folks, it would almost be saying we have no hope except for Jesus Christ. If it weren't for him, then we would conclude that paragraph with saying no hope. But that's not what we're left. There is the righteousness of God available to all through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 21 
But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So apart from the law, there is the righteousness of God. And it is nothing new, even all throughout the Old Testament, we saw the righteousness of God being proclaimed. And then specifically, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ is available to any and all who believe. And all means all. All you have to do is put your trust in Jesus Christ. To stand before Him with the empty hands of faith and say, Lord Jesus, save me. Act upon me, for I am a sinner. This is good news. The early part of, the, of what we read, that's the bad news. But God doesn't give us the bad news without the good news. And again, the good news is truly good. I do not have to live as one who everything that comes out of his mouth is deceiving and lying and filth. I do not have to live as one who has no desire for God, no love for God. But I can live in the righteousness of God. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Because it's chapters 6, 7, and 8 that talk about living in the righteousness of God. Our main concern here is being right with God. Being right before God. And how can the sinner, who is as far from God as the Alps are from the stars... How can a sinner be right with God on the basis of Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God and became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Him? Glorious good news. Hallelujah. That the one who stands condemned with no defense, no protest, no justification can stand before God clean. Because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. All you have to do is believe upon Jesus. And that's not believing like somebody believes in the Loch Ness Monster. Saying, you know, I believe there's a Loch Ness Monster. Somebody, oh, I don't believe there's a Loch Ness Monster. Does it do any difference? Does it make any impact on either person's life? None whatsoever. But it's more like believing in medicine. I believe that medicine will help me. Then what do you do? Swallow it. You take the medicine. It is not just an intellectual nod toward that faith in Jesus will somehow benefit me, but it is an act of putting my trust in Him. Turning from my trust in myself to my trust in Him. Jesus, you alone can save. And I cry out to you, save me. And I thank you that your word says that you will and you do. To all who believe shall be saved. Thank you, Jesus. And he saves you. Why not just wait? Why not just enjoy life and wait to the last possible minute? There's one, it's a fallacy to think that you can really enjoy life without God. Look around us. 
We're living in the most prosperous time that human history has ever experienced. And some of the most miserable people are the ones that we look at on TV every night. You can't even, you don't even, we do not even have the capacity to truly enjoy life if we do not know Jesus Christ. But there's a second part of that fallacy. Why not just wait to the very end? If all I have to do is believe in Jesus, then why not just wait to the end? Because there is no guarantee that when you live a life of 60, 70, 80 years of opposition to God, that you will be soft enough and tender enough toward God to put your faith in Him at the end. Jan Lucky's dad did at 86. That was a miracle in more than one way. It is always a miracle of God's grace when somebody puts their faith in Christ. But when a person does it after 86 years, I'm telling you folks, there is no guarantee In fact, it goes against even what we know in our own common experience of how sin works. That a person would want to be saved that late in life. The longer we go in our obstinance and rebellion, the harder it is to come to the Lord. But, nonetheless, the saving grace of God is available to all who would believe. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are justified. I heard Charles Price, when he was preaching on on this subject, he said that in England many years ago, in one one township at least, when when a person was convicted of his crime and hung publicly that they would hang a sign on his neck, on his dead body, that said, justified. Once the penalty for his crime has been paid, justice has been satisfied, and he is justified. The only way for justification to take place, the penalty must be paid. The scripture never says, as Charles Price says, that we have been mercified. We have been justified. The justice of God had to be satisfied. The penalty had to be paid. And it has. 100% for every person. He is the propitiation, which is to say that he is the atoning sacrifice as Vincent pointed out this morning in Sunday, class, Sunday school class, for all the world, 1 John 2, 2. That all the world had its sin paid for in Christ. That any and all who believe might be justified, saved before God. Amazing. And to stand before God with every single individual sin paid for. And God says, you are clean. You are free. You have right standing with me. Justification is something that is done one time. It never needs to be repeated. No matter how many times we may sin throughout our lives, we never need to go back and say, God, justify me again. It has been done 
we stand free and uncondemned before God. This is why Paul will say later in Romans, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. Because when we put our faith in Christ, who has satisfied the just demands of God, God says, justified. And this is why he can be the just justifier. Look what it says a little later in this paragraph. Verse 26. For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is a just justifier. He righteously makes righteous. And only on the basis of his justice could we be justified. That doesn't make sense to me. Say, God, how is it that a person can receive Christ in his last hour and be just as justified as the person who received Christ when he was 10, 11 years old? And God says, because it has nothing to do with you or when it happened. It has to do with me and my grace and my justice. And I declare you justified. Not on the basis of when it happened or how you lived or how much you deserve it as opposed to another person, but on the basis of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He has done. And that will never change. Bad news. Good news. The good news will never be truly good to us unless we allow God to impress upon us the bad news. And I would just wrap it up with just maybe an encouragement to you with that. You will find in your friendships with people, your interactions with people, that there will be times when, when they are being convicted of their sin. It is being pressed down on them. And a sense of worthlessness and helplessness and condemnation comes upon them. And in your love for them, you will want to alleviate it. You may be making yourself an enemy of God. It is God's good ministry in His love and in His grace. He wants us to come to an understanding of our helplessness before God, of our enmity toward God, of our powerlessness and our hostility toward Him that we might be convicted of our sin and repent and put our faith in Jesus. I'll never forget a time when one of my kids, when he was just little, was just sobbing next to me on the bed after I'd spanked him and said, Dad, the very things I hate in others, I do myself and just sobbing. And in a moment of listening to the Lord, I said to him, Son, you're absolutely right. I didn't say only I love you. I told him I loved him. I told him I forgave him. I told him nothing would ever change my love for him. But I did not want to take away what God was clearly doing in his life. To convict him of his sin. Because my prayer for my children has always been that they might know Jesus as their life. And how are they going to know Him as their life if they don't know their desperate need for Him? And when God makes a person desperate, don't stand in God's way. It's a good place to be. Lead them on 
to Jesus. Our justification before him. We don't walk in condemnation any longer. We have been justified before God. Praise God. We are forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Christ. By Jesus who gave himself for us. We trust in him. And we are made right with God. Let me close us in prayer. Father, thank you again for your ways and for your word. We thank you, God, that though your ways are higher than ours and, and beyond our comprehension, we thank you that they won't change because they are true of you. And you are true and good and righteous and holy. Lord Jesus, may we walk in humility before you to humble ourselves and to accept your verdict upon us. You say it in love, in kindness. You don't say it with a sharp edge to it. You don't say it in order to beat us up, but to bring healing, the healing of Jesus through faith in him alone. So God, I pray that you would speak continually into our hearts and we would hear you but also Father in the hearts of those that we dearly love who have yet to put their faith in Christ speak clearly Lord we pray that they would hear you give them hearts to hear what you have to say concerning them and their sin that they might hear your loving voice concerning Jesus and the love of God that has been demonstrated in him Thank you, Father, for your word that gives us the assurance, the conviction, the settled rest, that all is right when we put our faith in Christ. That you give your spirit to us as a pledge, God, that we are yours, a very inheritance of you, that our sin has been washed away, nailed to the cross, their certificate of debt canceled. We've been born again from above, never to be forsaken, made righteous, and that now we can enter before your throne of grace with confidence and boldness to receive grace and mercy to help in our time of need. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for opening the way, for being the way, into the love of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen.